Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys. Today's episode is brought to you by Storybound. I'm very excited to introduce you to this podcast. Storybound is a radio theater program designed for the podcast age. It's hosted by Jude Brewer, and it features the voices of today's top literary icons reading their essays, poems, and fiction. Season one stories include readings from writers like Mitch Albom, Lydia Yuknovich, Adele Waldman, Deeksha Basu, Nathan Hill, Caitlin Dowdy, Mitchell S. Jackson, and more. And each episode is paired with a talented musician who provides the score. At its heart, Storybound is a storytelling podcast. It's for people who enjoy the fiction podcast universe and for those who enjoy the kinds of deep human stories featured on shows like The Moth or This American Life. The New York Times calls Storybound, quote, a private reading just for you. The show is a collaboration between the Podglomerate Podcast Network and Lit Hub Radio. Subscribe and listen to Storybound and enjoy the stories of literary icons from around the world. Storybound, available today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. How are you out there? What's going on? I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. I hope you're doing well. Uh, Matthew Zapruder is my guest today. He is back on the program for a second time. He uh, he talked to me over the transom, uh, I think, two or three years ago. And this time around, he was in Los Angeles, and he came over, and we sat down in person and had a terrific conversation that I'm excited to share with you. It's going to come up here in just a moment, but I thought that before we got started, it might make sense because Matthew is uh, an acclaimed poet if he were to read a poem for you, right? Let's do that. Let's hear from Matthew Zapruder. He's going to read his poem entitled Father's Day from his collection entitled Father's Day. So it is the uh, eponymous poem. I think I have that right. So here's Matthew Zapruder reading his poem, Father's Day, from his poetry collection entitled, Father's Day. 
Yesterday we walked down to the park, the worn one our dear city tries to maintain, next to the library. A flash of terror. My kid ran through people playing soccer to the swings. I talked to some dads, nice business guys, with the usual deep sorrow wells I recognized from the mirror. Their eyes were wild, were all waiting with dread for Father's Day. We don't deserve a little brunch, followed by a sleepy blowjob. We all know merely to survive this totally survivable life is not enough. What good will it do? We must not think this is some dream. The children sleeping alone in some detention center don't need our brilliant sincerity. It's not enough to give some money, make some calls. They are not ours, but they are. We are the first new fathers. Ours failed where we cannot. Stop waiting. There are no others. All right, there you go. That is Matthew Zapruder reading his poem, Father's Day, from his collection entitled Father's Day. It is available now from Copper Canyon Press. I am so pleased to have him back on the program. He's one of our finest poets here in the United States of America. So uh, without any further ado, this is Matthew Zapruder. And one more time, his new collection is called Father's Day. Um, maybe a little bit longer time, but there was a pretty intense period of time of composition since 2018. So yeah, so a good chunk of it is written, you know, over the past, since 2016. Yeah. Okay. Most of it. There's, there's a few poems that are, that are, that were before, but and it, for, f- yeah. it felt to me, um, it's like somebody wrestling with like the, the primary themes that emerged for me were wrestling with what's happening in America right now um, since 2016, uh, wrestling with the rigors of fatherhood and in particular being the father of, um, uh, like, what do you, like, what's the proper terminology? A child who is not neurotypical. Yeah. Neurodivergent, I think. I yeah. Neurodivergent, yeah. Um, which I can relate to, um, you know, as a, a parent of a neurodivergent and, um, you know, a physically disabled child. Um, and I, I mean, I think those are the two big ones for me, um, and mm-hmm. very moving. And I think that, uh, the, the place that I'd like to start is a place of primary interest for me is the way that you navigated writing about, uh, in particular, the personal fatherhood stuff, the decision-making process as you were composing. Uh, I'm struggling with this and have been for a while in trying to write something about my own experiences. Um, I think we can, even though our kids are not um, dealing with exactly the same thing, I think we can relate as parents to like what that experience is like. And you can't really relate unless you've been through it. Mm-hmm. Um, or at least that's my perception of it. It's hard for, I think, parents who have typicals to understand like just like what a bomb goes off inside of you when the diagnosis comes or the diagnoses. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to try to render that in art, to me, is like reflexively makes a ton of sense. Like, what else are you going to do? <laughs> Especially, you know, you're a poet. Of course, you're going to write about it. But... Um, you also want to make sure that you do a service to um, your child. You want to make sure you don't do a disservice. Like you know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. All those, all those, um, 
decisions that you make creatively and uh, you know the negotiating process that you do with yourself and wanting to get it right can you talk about how you handled that yes well first of all i felt also responsibility to just generally neurodivergent um people um and how they're represented i i didn't it wasn't just about my kid i i I also felt like i wanted to make sure that i was treating that subject with dignity and and respect and also respect for the fact that i mean as you know each person's experience is is different when it comes to that sort of thing so i i was i was mindful of all that but i think what actually happened is is that um in the in the summer of 2018, I started doing this daily writing project with a friend of mine. I mean, it wasn't even a project. I mean, we just started writing poems to each other. Um, one of my best friends, Matt Roar, Matthew Rohr, who's a great poet who lives in New York, and we were just writing poems to each other every day, kind of like almost like having fun. We were just sort of like some some of them are more like jokes, or we would parody things, or just goof around to try to. But I think that creating that space where I thought only he was going to read the poems. I suddenly started writing these super intense poems about my life in general. It wasn't just about my kid, but just about a lot of things. And I got um, very deep, very fast in a way that I might not have done if I had sort of sat down and said, okay, and I'm now writing poems for my next book that's going to be read by a bunch of people. It's a kind of trick I've accidentally played on myself. So I think that's part of what happened. And it made it easier to go to that place. Um, and then once I was there, I realized, whoa, this is where I need to be as a writer. You know, I can't, I mean, obviously I need to be there, you know, but I didn't kind of know that before I got there, I guess. No, I've, I've had that same impulse to like, you know, maybe if I just wrote this as if I were emailing my friends and make it like an epistolary thing. Well, I mean, this is jumping ahead, but I'm working on a writing project now where, um, I did that for several months with a different friend of mine. I wrote prose back and forth with her every day we wrote we had an agreement where we would write 500 words a day to each other and no no commenting or workshopping it or anything like that just sending it to each other and we did that um in the last three months of 2018 and beginning of 2019 and i wrote you know 125,000 words and now i'm editing it trying to figure out what to do with it to make it a book but it was um an amazing experience. Who's the friend? Do you may My ask? friend is Catherine Barnett. She's a poet. She's published several books. Her most recent book, um, yeah, it's, she's 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 fantastic, and she's a great poet. And she, um, you know, is also working on a book of prose about questions. And so we were we were kind of like writing back and forth every day. And, and that, was there any structure to the? I'm curious about this process. Was it just wide open? Wide open. And and she was more writing. I think trying to write into that particular subject of question asking. That was her interest. But mine was just to do a to do a daily writing project. My idea was that I would write poems from drafts. I would start poems from nothing, and I would write the poems, and then I would write about that process and also about my life. That's that that was the kind of idea, and that's what I ended up writing about and doing. And so it's a book. It's like a process book where the where the where I you know I begin with these all these like terrible drafts of poems, basically I mean like crazy stuff that makes no sense, and you know. But then you know gradually try to work it and work it and work it. And then there's a few poems in this book that came out of that process. Interesting. Um, so and also so so so. But my point is is that. You know, I do think there's something about emailing one person. Um, there's a famous uh, 
essay that was written by Frank O'Hara called Personism, which is kind of a funny, like, manifesto that's also sort of jokey. And he writes about how writing to one other person is kind of this uh, realization he had about making poems and how it allowed him to invent this whole new school of personism that's going to destroy literature, he said, as we know it. <laughs> it's the ambition of all great writers. And in right? a way he did, because, you know, I mean, you, you, you said, you, you mentioned earlier, you said, oh, the, the, the book feels diaristic. I mean, I think, you know, there's some poets who don't write at all about their lives. They don't, they write about other things or they have projects or they write, you know, ekphrastic poems about paintings or whatever, you know, but then there's people who the material is more um, closer to their own lives. I mean, Wallace Stevens has this famous remark he made that the all commanding subject matter of poetry is life and i've always thought that that's such a great remark because i feel like it's true for me you know my my life is where the poems come from and and enters into it interacts with it and so yeah i i i think my work probably does feel a little more diaristic than some other people's well and i think the another word you could use in addition to diaristic is just intimate Mm. it's that intimacy of voice that i think would be a byproduct of writing those emails to one person you know, and like generating poetry through that process, it makes sense to me that the end product would wind up feeling intimate, like you're really getting mm-hmm. the goods. And I also think that um, your collection does something that thrills me whenever I, I find it, which is to take sort of the mundane details of life and elevate them. Um, you know, it's not it's not simple to do, but like all of a sudden you're like, oh, he's in the park. But all of a sudden things just... <laughs> sort of right. rock it up you find something some detail or you know you render some experience in a way um that suddenly takes takes it deeper um and well, I, it's the hope of literature right to 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 find those cracks and you know uh in in experience or in or in story or whatever that somehow move out of the merely anecdotal or the merely plot driven or whatever into some kind of larger significance commonality I mean, in poetry, that happens often in the symbol or the image, but in, 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 pro, in stories, I think it can more happen in terms of like the events of the of whatever's going on or setting. And but um, yeah, we're I'm doing a lot of generalizing now, but but yeah, the 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 um, that's what I'm looking for for sure. You know, and when I'm writing, I'm trying to find those moments that where things naturally feel like they 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 move into a more significant space, I guess, and. Um, you know, I'd be heavy handed about it or s- sentimental or something. I mean, there's a lot of stuff I write where it's like I write and write and write and write and there's just nothing there. Nothing happens, you know, and I just throw it away. But then every once in a while, you know, you get this little, these moments where you're like, ooh, something is starting to shine. Like it's starting to glow or I can feel it. It's like a little crackle of electricity. It's like, I know I'm, I'm getting near the source, you know, yeah. I got to just stay there and poke around and keep and looking, listen. keep looking, keep listening, keep, keep, keep putting words next to each other, seeing it's very, you know, it's like almost like being a scientist or something, you know, you're just looking for the reaction. Um, but yeah. And then, and then you got to make sure that on the other side, it's like something that people can read and like get, you know, get a hold of. Yeah. Well, it no. can't be esoteric, you know? It's a, no. And that's another thing is that your poems are crystal clear, which I love. Um, that doesn't mean they don't challenge, but, um, they move vertically quickly in general. Yeah. And, there's a musicality to them. It's like they come out a lot. A lot of them feel like a long, beautiful, breathless sentence, mm-hmm. like to you know, say to be uttered in a single line, almost um, with some exceptions. But I guess I'm curious uh, to hear you talk about 
just the composition process. You alluded to it a little bit just a second ago, but um, I think I was picking up bits and pieces from the poems themselves. It seems like you were composing early in the morning yeah. a lot, like you were getting up at the crack of dawn and going and sitting down to write. I don't know if that's your ritual, but can you just take people inside like what it generally looks like for you to make one of these poems? Like, do they shoot out of you like when you're feeling it? Or like you said, you're sitting there, you're doing a rough draft, you're drafting, you're drafting, you're drafting, you're sitting there and looking and listening until you finally get the reactions you want. Like how, how does it look in it's general? It's more like the latter. I mean, I, I, you know, yes, early morning is a big thing for me, partially for practical reasons that I'm sure you can identify with, you know, as a dad, you know, the earlier you can get up, you know, you get those, you get that period of time that's a little buffer between you and like breakfast chaos, you know, and like guilt, like you just like, <laughs> nobody yeah. needs you, you know, Yeah, exactly. It's bits. It's amazing. So that, so that kind of like uselessness in a way that you just said, nobody needs you. That is part of it too. You know, I think as a writer, you have to feel useless sometimes, you know, you got to feel like, Oh, nobody needs anything from me right now. I just need to just, there's this vacuum and I can just do what I need, what I attracts me or what interests me. Part of it's that part of it's that, um, like in terms of writing poems, it's good to be close to sleep, you know, um, dream state. I think that's helpful. Uh, just walking around the world. That's a half awake is, is good. And yeah, so it's not really like a ritual. Exactly. It's more just like how early and I get up super early and I, and I get to my, what does super early mean? Five. Yeah. Try to get up at five if I can. I mean, it just happens out of just sheer anxiety bolting me awake, you know, like electric cattle prod to my, my, you know, dopamine system or whatever. Do you check your phone? No, I don't check my phone. I try not to do that right away. Um, I don't keep that those electronics. I try to keep them out of my. Do you write longhand? No, I have terrible handwriting and my hand cramps very easily. So I usually write um, on my computer. I did for a while use a typewriter. My, my, I found my mom's old manual typewriter, and that's how I wrote a lot, most of my first book. And it was, that was really good because it slowed me down. Yeah. And I would just, I would like, you know, peck out a draft, and then I'd each time another draft, another draft, another draft. And that was really, really good as a young poet. I mean, I didn't, it's funny because at the time it was like before that became like this cheesy like thing. Everybody there manual typewriters, you know. No, I was just like, gonna say like I I used to have one and I have a buddy who types on a typewriter and I tease him about it. But um, I think in the world that we live in, like yeah, there's the you you can argue that it's this pretentious thing and you're trying to be like some you know you're trying to live in some like uh, anachronistic way, but it's great for slowing you down. Oh, I, I it's funny. I was just thinking. I'm just remembering this now. I was like. Um, giving this talk at some point I was talking about my typewriter and I was talking about, and I really do love these typewriters. I have a Royal quiet deluxe. That was my mom's typewriter when she was in high school. And, and, I, and then I have a bunch of other ones that I've sort of rescued, like, like animals, like damaged animals. I used to rescue them. Um, and so now, now, now they're valuable and hard to get or whatever. But like, um, but I remember I was giving this talk and, and I was like really going off about how like the worst thing is like when people, take these things apart and then they use the keys as like jewelry it's terrible and i look and of course there's this woman sitting right in the front row with like you know like you know suzanne or whatever oh man, my god keys. and i was like oh i was like except <laughs> suzanne the typewriters are ready to damage to use like probably was in this case this <laughs> is like that but no i i i mean yeah there's a there's a there's a great typewriter repair shop in berkeley that's actually right next to a dispensary so it's like a perfect afternoon of like you know oh my god just, yeah. so but i don't use the typewriter too much anymore just because it's loud and we don't want to wake anyone up so you're on a laptop 
mostly. Yeah, well, sometimes I'm on my phone if I'm like you know in the middle of something or in a meeting at school. But in that morning writing, yeah, if you get up, or, or I have a, I have a desktop that I sit and it's 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 in my it's in this little study I share with my wife, a small room, but it's nice because it's like at the front of the house. So there's a big win- not a big window, but there's a window and you can kind of see the light kind of gradually come so it feels a little bit like being in the front of a ship prow of a ship is that the right yeah or something like that yeah i don't know but yeah but it feels a little bit like that kind of i'm like i'm like in the front and my wife and kid are behind me and i'm like okay i'm like the captain you're the the, captain the (laughs) captain of the ss pointless (laughs) (laughs) it's a lovely ship it's great Uh, places um and so and you know this is really like tedium but i'm you know i feel like it applies to most of us like when you're on that computer you have internet access you just discipline you don't use it i try not it's well sometimes the internet can be helpful in writing poems i mean for me because you know if i if i you know i'll associate you know so it's like maybe i i i know i was just doing this today um i was i'm writing some collaborative poems with a friend and just to just to play around and like uh I was thinking about, for some reason, that word exchequer came into my mind. Yeah. And I was like, what is exchequer? Like, what, what? I know it's like some kind of an office of officialness in, in the UK. In England. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't, but I didn't really know about that. So I looked, I Googled it, and I was like, oh, yeah. And there's all this extra information that's kind of. What, what does it mean? What is exchequer? I think it's like um, a financial, like, right. um, like uh, it's sort of like what it sounds like. Like the it's treasury? Like or... Her Majesty's exchequer, exchequer. It's like some kind of budgetary thing. And, okay. Um, but it like, it, you know, it had all these other cool words that were associated with it. And I was like, oh, this is great. So so that's sort of more what I'm looking for. But no, I mean, I use a, this is, sorry if this is tedious, but I use this program called Freedom. Uh-huh. Freedom. And, oh, yeah. I, and I block all social media from I think it's eight in the morning until five at night, seven days a week. So I don't, I don't do social media during, very rarely. If I need to, I can look at it on my phone or something, but I don't. How does it work? It's, it's only on your computer. You can have it on your phone, your iPad too. You can, you can, you can associate it with any device. Yeah. And, and that means you can't even, if you wanted to use the Twitter app or you wanted to go on Twitter, it won't let you. Well, I don't know how, I don't have those apps on my phone. So, oh. but, but you can't. Me and it might block that too, but it but it definitely blocks like the internet access to any site that you set it. For. So you can set it for different sites. So I just set it to block Twitter and Facebook because that's yeah. the only thing that I'm on. So yeah, yeah. you can set it to block your email too if you want. I unfortunately can't because I have the um, the grave responsibility of being uh, director of a creative writing program. So God oh, forbid right. I'd be out of email. Time <laughs> right, for, right. You got to be available. <laughs> you know, it's like any emergency can arise, <laughs> but, uh, but no, but it's been, I mean, it's just in terms of my sanity. Um, I mean, I don't need to tell you that like, you know, that can make you completely nuts. The social. So, so there's any social media happening when I'm writing. Good for you. Um, yeah, I just, I can't do that. I mean, I'm not, it's not like I'm some kind of like disciplined person. It's just, I have to just, Remove the temptation, you know. Yeah, but that's its own form of discipline. Yes, you know? that was a smart move to get to get that program. That definitely was a good idea. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. 
The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So stylistically, you know, like, and I, I feel like because there's such a musicality to your work and, um, you know, whenever I hear people trying to talk about music, I get frustrated mm-hmm. because it's a really hard thing to language. Um, that's just, I think it inherent in it. Um, so I don't want to drive us crazy, but I am interested in knowing if you have, um, uh, like a, a way to define your style. Is that just the way they come out for you? Is that something like, are you working from precedent? Is there an effect that you're aiming for? Um, that is similar to the one I described earlier of things just sort of tumbling. It feels like there's a great yeah. momentum and a velocity to your work. I think it, I think when you, I mean, the poets I love, there's a authenticity to their voices it, and it, it matches their way their minds are working. And that can be a lot of different things. It can be an onrush. It can be very spare and fragmented. It can be, you know, all kinds of things. And so for me, things like music and form, all that stuff, it's bodily. It's, it's, I feel it in my body when it's wrong until it's right. So it's all, it's all part of the somatic kind of like um situation that i'm building and it's it's these these poems are like they're artifacts in a way of thought but i'm building these little spaces or not so little or whatever spaces where hopefully you can go and other people can go and have like a kind of congruent experience let's say to the one that i had you know that's so they're so it's it's there's something natural about it but also artificial so so the music is about for me is about the authenticity of that experience i'm like i don't I know when it's wrong, when it's right. I mean, I, I, I've done this a long time and I can feel when it's just not the, the, I mean, it's a little bit like, I remember I used to have a friend who, who, who was in architecture school and they spend, they spend all their time building these little models, you know, and that's what you do when you're a writer, you know, especially when you're a poet, you're just building these little models and little models and they fall down for a long time and then they, then they start to not fall down. You know, it's funny. I talk to people who, especially people who work in uh, longer form, like prose writers. And many times on this show, I've had the conversation about starting a new project. Like you finish like Mm -hmm. an 800 page novel and then you've got to start Mm -hmm. on the next thing. Do you get better? Does it get any easier? And the typical consensus is no. Like you're basically a babe in the woods every time and you have no idea what you're doing. Is that the case for poetry? Like, do you feel like you've been doing this a long time? Do you feel like you've you've gotten better is is it come more easily over time um i think that th- there's a couple of answers to that one is in some basic fundamental way no it does not get easier um the the challenges just get more extreme in a certain kind of way i mean just to take come back to this book you know this is not a book these I could never have written these poems ten years ago. I just didn't have the skill to do it. I would have I would have completely collapsed in the face of my own personal experience, and also in the face of um, you know this larger public experience that we're going through. I just wouldn't have been able to handle it. So, but um, you know the the there are ways of getting started that you learn over time that work particularly 
I mean, as a poet, I can say, I don't know if this is true for prose writers, but, you know, I, you know, there are ways of getting going, and I've learned which ones work better for me. So in that sense, it's gotten easier. And likewise... And wait, wait, which ones work better for you? Oh, I mean, there's all kinds of, like, little tricks. I mean, you could call them writing exercises if you want, but, like, um, you know, like, simple things like, you know, I might just pick a word and then, uh, you know, uh, figure out... Um, like a, a, a line that it goes in and then figure out something else that could go after. And just like, it it just works for me to, it's almost like rubbing like sticks together for me, but for somewhere else it might work to, to be, to work in a form you know, it might work them for them to start in a sonnet or it might work for them to start with a certain number of a syllabic requirement. I have friends who like, they, they're like, yeah, if I do seven, five, seven, five, like somehow I, I can suddenly get going or whatever. And so over time you learn that you don't know that when you start writing, but then if you've written a lot, you're like, Oh, this is an easier way to get started. But also, and I have more elaborate, like insane writing exercises that I've invented for myself, you know, that are, that are like, you know, bizarre, like pro- process based things that, that just work for me. Sometimes I have these, um, exercises I invented for myself called, uh, I call them like library is poem machine or museum is poem machine or city is poem machine. And I enter into a place and I perform a certain set of tasks, writing tasks, and then leave uh, with a certain amount of material that then I can start to work on. You know? Like, like so. you enter the physical, the actual yes. physical space. Yeah. You'll go to the library. Yes. You'll go to a museum. I go to the library, go to the card catalog, pull out the third you know, drawer from the left and pick a card. The second word you see, write it down, then look up that word in the Oxford English Dictionary to write a sentence. But, you know, something like that. You know, it's like a series of processes. And that, you know, that's just generating material. It's like a scavenger hunt. Yeah, right. So so that works for me to remove, in a way, the, um, the, the necessity of having some, of starting with the big feeling. I, I think that music leads you to, to content especially in poetry. And so I, I, I like, I prefer to start anywhere or start with something unpromising and then almost like excavate what matters to me. I'm like, I think the analogy would be to like a psychological set, a therapy session where you come in and you're like, I don't have anything to talk about. And you could just hear the therapist like rubbing their hands as soon as you say that. You know, you're like, you're like I did have this weird dream about a ceiling fan, and then suddenly, you know, and they're like, "Now we're talking." Yeah, right. <laughs> you know? So, like, so you know, it's like that. It's like you start with something, and and almost sometimes I almost think like the less promising the beginning is, the better because it's somewhat so little pressure. You're just like, oh, I can do anything to this because it's like so irrelevant. Yeah, but um, so so a question yeah. for you: mm-hmm. when you're sitting at uh, at home. Um, you know, at the front of the ship or whatever, as you said, at that computer, do you listen to music when you work or are you no, in silence? I, I can't listen to music. It's too, um, it's too intense for music is very like distracting. Yeah. I just, I'd get sucked in, up into it, you know, and it's emotional for me and I, I don't, I can't do that. I mean, I might stop and like play a little music sometimes like as a break, like just, you know, play an instrument or whatever. Or like, you play, what do you play? Guitar? I play guitar, yeah. Okay. And, uh, you know, just, just to kind of like get in a different space. But, um, no, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't listen to music for the most part. Um, the other thing I was going to say about the process thing is that, um, I think one thing you can learn, and I'm sure this is true for prose writers too, and tell me if you think this is right or not, is that there's certain mistakes that you can see coming earlier, basically. Like, there, I would waste. When I was a younger poet, I would waste weeks trying to do something that now I can see ahead of time. Like that's not going to work, 
or that's not really what I want to do. I'm just doing that because I because someone else did it and I thought it was cool, but it's not really authentic to me. And I learned to experience not to do that. So, right. so I think that is another thing that can get a little easier about it as as time goes on. You're just and that's why I say to my students a lot of the time. I said I'm not more talented than you. I don't. It's just that I've done this so many times that I can see like where you know back to the analogy that house model like. If you do it that way, it's going to fall down. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes I'm wrong about that and it doesn't fall down, but most of the time I'm not. Most of the time, the mistakes they're making are like pretty rudimentary structural things, and it just, you know, you just learn. It's just like same way if you've written, you know, a no- couple novels or whatever, and then you're like, oh, I can't do that because if I do that, then I'm going to have this problem later, and so I'm just not going to do that. Right. <laughs> save my, <laughs> yeah. save but, myself but the three only months. One way to learn, right? Yeah. I mean, you can read all the books you want, but until you until you write the books, you, you know, you don't know anything. Well, I, I think too, like like hearing you talk about this, like these writing exercises that you invent for yourself, um, like that's a deep form of self knowledge creatively, and it speaks to me because sometimes, like I'll be back here working, and sometimes you just get stale in one place. Oof. Like there's something to be said for moving around and like getting yourself out into the world, and like even if it's just something as simple as going to the library, um, like being in a different physical environment and making yourself engage in an activity. That makes some sense to me. Well, uh, Lorca, Lorca has this great uh, remark from one of his lectures where he says, I don't believe in the seated artist. I believe in the artist who walks the road. And um, I think that that is very wise, that if you can get up. I have a stand-up desk. Does that count? That counts. Lorca, that's exactly <laughs> what Lorca had in mind. That's what he was thinking about. <laughs> Lord, yeah. But um, the... the uh, um, yeah, the, the moving around thing is, is huge. And I, I mean, I don't know, just, just from what you're saying, I wonder whether writing another person might not, might not help in terms of this project that you're working on, which I don't know anything about other than what you said, but like in terms of the, the deep, like kind of work of writing about your son and your family and your life as a father or whatever, maybe, maybe writing another person would give that a kind of intimacy and focus that, you know, is, is instead of just sitting alone and kind of like in the in the you know penumbra of your own like anxiety like and trying to like yeah. make it happen i don't know well yeah no that, that that i mean that speaks to what i'm doing a bit because i'm now at the point where i think i'm going to write it um in a manner not dissimilar to like a monologue for this show mm. where i'm just t- talking right <laughs> you know like talking it out um and this kind of brings me to my next line of questioning because you've been through this in your poetry collection is making especially like the editorial decisions around what to say and what not to say. Um, and I think we, you know, we touched on this at the very top, but like about wanting to make sure you don't do your son and other people who are neuro- neurodiverse, a disservice, wanting to make sure you don't like publish something that, that leaves you with egg on your face. Cause mm-hmm. you were ignorant or had a blind spot that you shouldn't, you know, probably shouldn't have had. I have all of these fears. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the big concerns is like how much, how much right do I have to divulge details about, um, my son's uh, particular neurology or health condition or whatever it is. Um, how much is of, of that is my story. Mm-hmm. And I don't, you know, the thing I live in dread fear of is like him being like 16 years old and being like, dad, fuck you. Well, it's probably going to happen to my, <laughs> but, but, uh, yeah, if you're lucky, the, the, um, the, the, I think in a way, none of it, you have a right to none of it. What you do have a right to is your, your experience in relation to it. And that's really my, my book isn't about my son actually at all. 
It's about my feeling of being the father of a child who, you know, was, you know, got a, let's call it a diagnosis, let's say. And that is not an uncommon experience, both for parents, I've learned, but also just in life, it's not an uncommon experience to have things work out shockingly differently than you thought. And, and, and it has to do what the interesting thing for me about, you know, let's say, you know, having this experience with my kid was it's a linguistic one in a certain sense, because, you know, you're given a diagnosis like, and has a name, but that just doesn't really begin to even cover what's actually going on, both for that kid and as that kid evolves and changes and also for yourself in relation to it. It's like, it's only, it's just a word that can get you resources and, and, and the consequences of it are, the negative consequences of it are, are immense because it, people make all kinds of assumptions and they generalize and, and they're ignorant. And, and I myself was ignorant, you know, I mean, uh, you know, so, so I, can I, can I ask you a question? Sure. 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 Cause I think in the poems you talk about, um, researching and learning, or maybe it was in the afterward. I could mm-hmm. be confusing. Afterward, yeah. Um, but you talked about doing like, you know, some pretty heavy research to try to learn so that you could be informed. And that's a very natural thing to do. If I'm being honest, I find that I have a limited capacity emotionally mm-hmm. for engaging with that. Do you ever struggle with that? Because no, no, it can be so anxiety-inducing. Yeah, it's, yeah I, I, no, I, and I didn't, it wasn't, yes, of course, I totally identify with that. I don't, I don't, and I don't know that it's that useful in a way because, you know, you have your kid and I have my kid and our kids are awesome. They, they, they have their stuff and then they have their amazing stuff and no, nothing you're going to read about in a book about this is going to help. That's, that's, that's what we need to focus on. Not, and the, 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 the research or whatever, they're trying to understand it was kind of almost just like basic rudimentary knowledge about what, I mean, my kid is on the spectrum and I didn't know anything about that. Right. I didn't know anything. I was so unbelievably ignorant. It's shameful to me how ignorant I was. By the way, it gives me um, a lot of compassion or sympathy for other people who can sometimes say it or do ignorant things because that could have been me, you know, before. And, um, so well, I'm I was, not, uh, you know. I don't mean to interrupt, but I no, was, no. I was just with some friends recently and we were getting our photo taken. It was a kind of like a group photo. And, uh, somebody's mom was like, okay, you retards, like trying to get us to smile. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that not a good feeling, not a good feeling. And I, I am very sensitive to that word in ways that I was not previously, mm-hmm. um, which is sort of shameful because I have a, um, a mentally disabled uh, uncle, you know, who was a big part of my childhood. Um, but, you know, times change. I think mm-hmm. sensitivities have definitely changed around that stuff. And I always like I didn't say anything. I don't I don't really usually take the time. Maybe I should. It's really hard, though, in context yeah. to like break up like a fun time and start giving everybody a decency lecture. But I did notice it. Yeah, uh, it's hard, you know, it's emotionally like it wounds me. Oh, and yeah, it's, well, and I mean, I wrote, um, about this and, and, you know, as part of this book, prose book I'm working on, um, it's an essay that I published in Harper's. Um, but I wrote about that, about how the first time I really understood what so many people of color and queer people and, you know, all, all people who are, who are marked as with difference in our society we're talking about when they talked about language harm yeah. was when I experienced it with my child. I, 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 I was like, Oh, 
like and i'm and i feel this deep sense of shame that it took that personal experience for me to really understand i mean i might have been superficially sympathetic you know i wasn't i you know but 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 my my understanding of that experience has changed and i'm not trying to equate my experience with you know you know somebody somebody else but i'm just saying there was something visceral about my the the mixture of fear and anger and 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 being you know just feeling of isolation destabilization all those things that can happen simply with a remark that somebody makes yeah that suddenly i understood and i think that that has been a profound experience for me in terms of how i relate to just what's going on in the world other people my students my colleagues everything so so i think that's been like in a in a weird kind of way i'd say it's been a gift i was just gonna say it's like you know i, I was i was saying this just you know a couple of days ago to somebody who came in here for the show i was like talking about being a parent and um you know my daughter is typical my son is not i love them both dearly you know your children you don't split hairs but there is something um like extra there's an extra emotional content a lot of the time with a, a disabled child or an atypical child just because there's more anxiety and worry uh naturally mm-hmm. uh and i'm like but also like the the that love feeling you know or whatever you want to call it like the cocaine mm-hmm. <laughs> that's kind of what i compare it to it's like the crack cocaine feeling yeah. of like when something goes right or the child is happy i mean you're just your heart just leaps mm-hmm. you know and um yeah and i mean it's 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 also this all this stuff i mean there's so much good stuff that's going on i mean it's just i mean the kid these kids are great and they're not they just are different you know and they're not it's it's yeah it's it's harder because of the world we live in and all the way it's built and the way it's made and you know the expectations people have and our own expectations all that stuff but i mean my kid is amazing he's a great kid he's like he's he's so funny and he's really really musical and he's um, everybody loves him and he's so sweet and he's like a great hang and he's like totally like into books and he's into spelling and he's in, you know, he's just like, he's great. You know? yeah. And so, so I love hanging out with my kid. He's amazing. And, and my own shit that I have to deal with is shit that I should deal with anyway. Right. You know, it's bullshit that I was carrying around and, and it's, it's, it's bullshit ways of looking at the world that I, that I've saw suddenly I was just like, this is ridiculous. Like, this is not how, this isn't the way to live, hmm. you know? And so it's just, it's just, I, I feel like part of the poems too, getting back to that is that, is that's where I'm really, it, the poems are almost out ahead of me and I'm being drawn into the, into these scary, new, interesting spaces by writing the poems. Like yeah. they, they, they pull me, they're changing me, you know? And, and, and that's how I think of writing in general is like, it's not, me just writing down what I think and like showing it to other people so I can like get something out of it or whatever. It's, it's like, it's surviving. Yeah. It's surviving. That's how, that's how I, I survive by writing. And, the, and that, that per- intense period in summer 2018 of writing poems and then the prose that came right after it, that helped me live hmm. and change. And that's, that's really what this is about. And of course it's nice to have books. Of course it's nice to make things out of them. Of course, it's nice to be on podcasts and go give readings and blah blah blah. Great, but like um, you know, that's that's not why I do this. Yeah. Well, did you ever uh, see the documentary on HBO about Gary Shanley by any chance? I have not seen that yet. It's really good. I haven't heard it. It's really good. But he was an uh, like a avid uh, diarist. He kept like journals mm-hmm. his whole adult life, 
And something that struck me, I was listening to an interview with Judd Apatow because Judd did a book. He directed the documentary Mm -hmm. on HBO, but he also did like a kind of an accompanying book, which functions as like a publication of these diaries or at least like great excerpts from them along with like photos. It's like a scrapbook. But one of the things that he said, I think it was on Fresh Air, um, about Shandling as a diarist is that he wrote as his best self. Mm. Like when I was, when I, whenever I've mm. kept journals, I'm just like pissing and moaning. <laughs> it's like, you know, like I always call them my complaining books. You know, I think that's usually the function of diaries. Mm. It's like you barf this stuff out mm. to sort of like get it out of your head, which has its merits. Like it's mm. not meritless to do that. But um, I just found it interesting that he was sort of like almost like taking on the voice of the Buddha or whatever, because mm. that was his mm. uh, orientation and sort of like aspirationally writing and it sounds kind of similar to what the function of what your poetry is doing is that like you know you're you're not going down you're reaching up yeah in a way or or just i mean virginia wolf has this um thing she writes about and um that her her moments being which is like her kind of like prose diaristic prose and she she um talks about yeah she talks about moments of being or and then these 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 are these moments of attention like great attention, you know, and that's what I'm looking for. It's not necessarily the be- my best self. It's the mo- it's my most intense, like real present self, and that can be a self that's, you know, in a bad place. So that can be in a self that's like a like that's having a feeling that I actually don't really like having, or that can be, you know, like making a joke or something, or like or like, but not, you know, but some kind of joke that has a deeper resonance or something, and like it's just. You know, I just try to be present in the poems, I guess. I mean, I know you're a big meditator, like, and, and, and you know, maybe there's an aspect of that, too, for me in, um, you know, in, in making poems, like, like presence. I kind of want to ask you something, though. Sure. Um, I mean, you've interviewed a lot of poets and, you know, among many other writers or whatever. Like, what do you, like, what do you think is particular about, like, poems or what interests you about poems or, like, what's different about it from you for or? I'll say this. I think that uh, conversationally, I always love talking to poems. I like talking to everybody who comes on the show pretty much. Like, and that's not bluster. Like, I think 98% of the time it goes well is what I typically tell people. Every once in a while, a conversation will come out in a way that I'm not like uh, thrilled with, either because of me like, or because it just fell flat. But mm-hmm. the overwhelming majority of the time, I think writers are great in conversation. I think poets... You know, for me anyway, the the compression uh, of language, the work that a good poem does to take you great distances in a short amount of um, pages, you know, short number of pages, um, thrills me. And I think there's something holy and meditative in um, poets that are in poetry that um, speaks to me. I find poetry enormously helpful to me as like a lubricant Mm. for my own work as a, as a prose writer. Like Mm -hmm. I'll read it to sort of like get my engine started. Um, I don't know. I love it. I, I, you know, some of my my, Milo who was just on the show, Mm -hmm. my dear friend, Rich Ferguson's another guy. Like I hang with a lot of poets. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think too, like people who really embrace that mantle, you know, because it's kind of a heady thing to call yourself a poet. Yeah. Um, and at some point you, you take it on, uh, a lot of people take it on and then sort of like drop it at some point and like go sell houses or something. 
but for people who really take it on and go the full length of their lives in poetry, I find something like heroic about that. Um, because, you know, listen, whether you write a novel or a memoir, most likely not very many people, um, are going to get their hands on it. That's just the nature. That's the mathematical Mm -hmm. nature of the process. But I think poetry in particular, um, can be thankless in that way to some degree, you know, it's like more marginalized, maybe, maybe you could disagree, but it compared to like, you know, the, the mainstream memoir or, well, Hot. just do the numbers. We'll yeah, the numbers. it's harder to get published. It's by a, by a big press for sure, but it's just harder to find people who are super stoked. And yet, I think it's enormously valuable, and it provides, um, at its best, I think it provides a map, for, like a very elegant map for very deep and delicate emotional and like psycho spiritual terrain. Is that a way of saying it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I just asked because, I mean, you've had a lot of poets on the show and you do a really good job of talking with them, but I just never really, you know, I was just so curious after hearing that, like what, to what extent, you know, why, why it interested you. And, um, I yeah. love compression. Yeah. I love compression in all writing. I think that that, like, I, you know, somebody can also write a beautiful 1200 page novel. I've read, you know, I've read books like that that have mm. thrilled me fewer than I have read of books where I feel like the heavy lifting has been done. Mm-hmm. Um, and some, when somebody is able to take a big idea or a big feeling and build a word structure for it that is elegant and efficient and clear as a bell, yeah, like that is something that I'm always grateful for uh, and aspiring to. You yeah, know? I mean, Wolf, another thing Wolf wrote is that um, in this great, she gave this great lecture called um, How Should One Read a Book? Which is, I think it was given to high school kids or something but it's and she sort of goes through like all the genres um talked about you know prose and every all kinds of different types of writing and super lucid and like really just amazing and then but then she says um she starts talking about poetry and she says the poet is always our contemporary and then she talks about how in a poem there's those moments where like time and space and everything just fall away and you're just present with this other voice and it kind of doesn't matter like who they are, or where they came from or whatever. There's something about the la- language itself becomes the, now, now I'm adding to what you said, but language itself becomes the subject in a certain sense, but not just language itself in like some kind of like, um, you know, like, like, like non content oriented way, the deep, the deep content of language, which is our like historical memory, our collective understanding of things. And it's a really unfashionable thing to say now because people are so into difference and and not and not eliding the differences in people's experiences for for really for really good reasons. But I also think that you know humanism. I'm still a humanist. You know, I still believe that we have commonalities, we have common experiences, and I also am pretty sure that if we don't have some way of having those feelings together, we're going to perish as a species Yeah, because we need collective action and a collective understanding of, of ourselves to try to figure out a way to mitigate this climate catastrophe. So not to mention other things. So it's, it's, it's a hard balance. It's like, how do you respect other people's difference and acknowledge it and not, and not be presumptuous while also, you know, not losing sight of the fact that we, need to stick together on some level. And that's the space that I'm really interested in in my poems. Hmm. Where's, where can both those things 
exist together. You know what I'm thinking about is that Steve Allman's a friend of yours. Very good friend of mine. Okay, yeah. I've had him on the show like mm-hmm. multiple times. He's like one of my favorite people to talk yeah, with. Yeah, he's great. Um, and it's making me think of his book, Stoner. Mm-hmm. Yep, love that book. Love it. And, right. you know, you just to like put a, um, a punctuation mark on why I love poets is that, you know, that book is all about wanting to live deeply and engage deeply with life mm-hmm. and to not have to apologize for it in a world of that's telling you basically to do everything but it's mm-hmm. the most distracting and you know we live in this hyper distracting environment and um i think poets um and also in addition to wanting to live deeply uh wanting to live in a way that doesn't place as the very highest value like capitalist success, like yeah. or traditional forms of success. Mm-hmm. And so I think one of the reasons why I gravitate towards uh, poets is because they sort of unabashedly live deeply and engage with life deeply in their work at, you know, at their best. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, um, sort of heroically thumb their noses at those traditional modes. I mean, you can't yeah. get into it in a serious way and expect to be a tycoon. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, there's, you know, funny thing has happened over the past, like maybe I'd say ten years in poetry, which is that now there is some money to be made in poetry. It's more, I think, around gigs than book sales. I mean, I do know poets who are making a pretty good living, like a gigging. speaker fee kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, honorary. You know, like like I mean, they. You know, I know a bunch of poets who, you know, I mean, their speaker fee is, you know, eight ten thousand dollars a gig and so if they're willing to travel and they can travel i mean they can make a pretty good living yeah i mean it's not an easy life you know i wouldn't i wouldn't want it even if it's I like a stand-up a comic or something it's just a lot of traveling a lot yeah. of, a lot of being with other people um and uh Ew. you know i know right it's like that and there will be blood when danny lewis says it's people <laughs> but uh, but i mean the, the um yeah it, you know there is some money to be made for sure um so it's not as like dire as it might have been like like before but um i i agree with what you're saying i think there is a way that it, it's sort of more like a spiritual orientation towards experience and language of not opposition but like um i'm going to always turn it around and look at it a different way i'm gonna always look at the other side of it i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna you know, like kind of mess with this and see what's out there. And I'm not going to mitigate that impulse to like try to please anybody or, or make money or keep my job or whatever. And I mean, it's just, it's just, I think that is a, a personality trait that I notice cuts across so many different poets. I know regardless of who they are, what kind of poetry they write, there's just a little like impish kind of like, like, yo, you say do it that way. Like, actually, no, I'm going to, I mean, I always joke about this with my students this is the minute I tell them to do something, they, inevitably we'll go do the opposite thing. I'm like, you know, so it's just, you know, that, that's just how, that's just how my students are there or, or any poets I know are, they're always going to do it the opposite way. And that's, I think that's cool. I think it's cool. There's still people who do that, you know? Yeah. I mean, there's something, I mean, so. not to get too like hippy dippy about it, but there, we need, let's go there. We need our mystics <laughs> like badly, like yeah. America, maybe in particular, um, you know, there seems to be uh, like that part of um, that part of humanity seems to be atrophying. And I think a lot of people are flying blind. If, you know, if they can get their hands on some good poetry, it might be able to illuminate. I mean, it is a little dispiriting to me the way that the writing world has become so much around, like, let's say, I mean, the, I, I'm shocked whenever I hear writers unironically use the word brand, like when they talk about their brand, I just <sighs> think like, 
And I mean, I don't mean to be, you know, everybody's got to make a living. Like, I'm not like, you know, I'm not like, listen, I'm, I'm not trying to like stomp on anybody's like, you know, lunch pail or whatever. But like, I, I like, you know, I do sometimes think, man, like, you know, can't something not be that? You know, Every, everybody's you know, marketing. But everybody, I don't know. I, I, what I'm saying now is something everybody always says. And then when it comes down to it, we're all just trying to like make our way in the world. That's better. right. You know, so I don't, I don't want to be like, but I just, I, I think it's. It's a commentary. It, like it's almost less a commentary on individual people or groups of people and more a commentary on the system that we live in that kind of forces us to behave this way to a certain degree. Well, you know what it's like? It's like um, uh, how when we, you know, we're pretty near the same age and like. When we were in college or whatever, like, I mean, I think that there was a level of suspicion towards mainstream culture that we had, and it was probably exaggerated, you know, or like, you know, reality bites, like, you know, like, right. like that went on to ride again, like, like who, nobody would, you couldn't make that movie now, like, like no, that's not how people in their twenties think about about dominant culture, mainstream culture. They don't have this reflexive and probably annoying and 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 limiting, but like sort of like. Hey, I'm not going to do what the man wants me to do. Well, you know I'm thinking that? of Kurt Cobain on the cover of Rolling Stone wearing that T-shirt that says "Corporate media still sucks." Right. And I mean, you know, and it sounds dumb now, and like you sound like a big cliche or whatever. But it was like I do miss a little bit of that impulse. Like, like I mean, you know, can't we just agree that like some of, some shit is like stupid, like corporate bullshit, yeah, or, and, or like, and, and and also that like new isn't always better. Like yeah, yeah. I remember hearing an interview with Tom Petty. Because he was like forever bemoaning like the yeah. loss of like the DJ and yeah. you know people playing records that they wanted to play instead of having to play the same fifty fucking songs over and over mm-hmm. again and you know he also was talking about like back the the time that he came up you know the, his band came up like albums were still a thing and reading mm-hmm. liner notes were still a thing which you and I grew up with mm-hmm. that was better than like this track by track like I, at least it was better for the musicians I think it was a like a more enriching experience and i sound like an old fart saying that yeah we're I, like we're going deep into old fart territory <laughs> right now but th- there is something though that that's interesting to to talk about form which is that you know but technology um when 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 the primary mode of listening to music was the record or the cassette it meant that you list were you had to listen through or you were it was it took a physical effort to move from one song to if you didn't like the third song on the record I had to get up, pick up the needle and put it down thing or whatever. And that, the cha- that change obviously in technology has had a huge effect on the way that people understand like, um, uh, music or what they're likely to be exposed to. And so that's one of the things that I really like about a book of poems is that it, 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 it's, it's not reading individual poems on the internet, which is, which has its value. And I'm glad things are around. I'm not, I'm not complaining about that, but I'm saying, that when you sit and read a book of poems, I mean, yes, you can bounce around in it, but in some senses you're like in a space that is, that's physically like there for you. Like, and it's not all theoretical. Like you could just skip to some other poem by somebody else, like right at that moment, you know, and or I like, like go check scores on ESPN.com. Yeah. yeah it's, I mean, you know, and, and, and there is, I mean, people say to me that, that, that a lot, I mean, ask me a lot, like, you know, okay with all this new technology or whatever like isn't poetry going to become obsolete and like or how do you how do you resist the technology to make poems and and i and i say 
it's actually the opposite. It's poems that help me resist the technology. You know, like if, if I'm feeling overwhelmed by my devices and by my interaction with social media or whatever, by the news, what, what Wall Stevens called the pressure of the real, you know, I'll go write a poem because that will build a space that protects me against that. You know, so it's like, it's like poetry isn't in trouble. It's, 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 it's my forgetting that poetry is there. That's the danger. Yeah. I think, I think that's, that's, you know, my, and people could probably say this about other activities besides poetry. You know, for me, it happens to be poetry primarily, but you know, you can maybe say this about meditating or going for a walk or, you know, whatever. I have all sorts of ways of armoring myself, like maybe too many, but like I, I need a lot. I don't, I'm not, I'm, I'm not taking anything. That's always what I joke, jokingly say. Like, you know, I got to go get some exercise and mm-hmm. sit down and be quiet. And yeah. I have my, I'm a kind of a creature of habit that way, but it works for me. Yeah. So, you know, I'm going to stick with it. Mm-hmm. And um, speaking of technology and using poetry as a kind of armor or like a coping mechanism or whatever, I want to ask you a related question um, because I have argued with poet friends of mine in the past that like, and this is maybe a little bit ironic considering what you just said, that poetry of all the literary forms uh, meshes best with technology and our devices. Like I find reading Mm -hmm. poetry on a phone way more satisfying than reading like a 15,000 word short story. Mm -hmm. Um, And you know, one of the like imaginings I've uh, gone back to over and over again is like, eventually we're going to have like, a hologram generator on our laptops and they're going to shoot like remember in star Wars when princess Leia gets yeah, shot out of R2D2. Yeah. <laughs> like that's, what's going to happen. There's going to be like a little Matthews Pruder on your desk and your uh, cubicle at work. Just like reading a poem to you. I know. <laughs> but, um, and I just want to, I want to um, add one more thing, which is uh, as an exam, as an exemplar of, you know, or maybe the exemplar of a poet who has leveraged technology um, and poetry, you know, to her benefit is like Rupi Kaur, this like sure. you know, internet poet sensation who's sort of like, and I could be mischaracterizing this because I'm not super familiar, but it's like sort of a blending of short form poetry and memes and image. Like, right? Is that what it? Well, I mean, um, she, she, her work primarily appears on Instagram and in books. She's sold millions of copies of her books, literally. I mean, she's one. Of, she is. She is by far the best-selling poet, you know, in you know, human history, probably. <laughs> and um, just about. And um, she is a huge star who sells out, you know, big auditoriums, like like a like a really popular band, sort of like Rob McEwen and, or something, like yeah, the, yeah, like Rob McEwen. Um, her work is. Um, their poems are mostly short and they are often accompanied by drawings that she makes. Um, and they have this visual quality to them that sort of emulates like a typewriter font. A lot of the time, like, I don't know if it's exactly, but it sort of has this sort of like handmade ish kind of quality to it. Um, when you read them so that, so the poems, um, have this distinctive look to them and, and, yeah, and she's extremely, extremely popular, and um, a, and, a, and a figure of great controversy among poets. She's, she's, you know, there's, there's been a lot of a, a consternation about the fact that she's so popular, and this is what people think poetry is, you know. Right. Um, Where do you fall on all that? Um, 
You know, I've, I've, th- I've, I've been trying to think for a while about her work. First of all, to take it seriously. I think, I think that um, anything that's that big a phenomenon that that many people are interested in and, and it deserves to be taken seriously. Um, I've read, I haven't sat down and read an entire book. I haven't milk and honey or whatever. And read, there's two, of, I think there's two of them, but, um, I've read many of her poems and, um, I think that there's something fascinating about the fact that the, the, the language in them is so general. It's so familiar like it's euphemistic, you know, so what she'll say is sounds like the kinds of things that are, are, are things that you say. I mean, people will, people will criticize it and say it sounds like it's a greeting card. Right. But it's but it's but it has that quality of like public language. And she almost is like rearranging this public language in different ways to to like find some combinations that seem to hit on things that really that mean a lot to people. And it's a very different model of writing it's it's not a it's not about originality it's not about um you know plumbing the depths of the imagination it's not about idiosyncratic views of the world and like neologisms and all that it's not about that it's about a it's about public speech and public feelings and collective feelings and i'm really interested in that as like a different model of like writing i think Mm. i think it's i mean I don't want to step on my own writing that I'm doing right now about her, but I think it, there's a way sometimes that it reminds me of some, uh, forms of collage, you know, where people take things that are not inherently considered artistic and they combine them to make works of art out of them. I don't, I have no idea if that's how she thinks about her work. I doubt it. Right. But that's how I sort of think, think about it. Well, and generationally she's what millennial, think so so i think like in my experience um with people like younger in that generation or even younger i think when you are a digital native and you grow up in that um like you grow up online your entire life you've never Mm -hmm. known you've never known an analog world what i find is that there's there's almost like a level of intuition about how to communicate on social media that like i struggle for (laughs) Like I'm always like I'm not good at this, and yeah. like these people are so it's like natural. It's a na- it's like a reflex. They've been doing it their whole lives, and like it's just the water they swim in. So it might be the case that that's that's how she's operating. It's just complete- yeah. I don't know. I never I never met her, and I've never I've heard, read a few interviews with her, but never really. Um, but I'm also not interested really in her motives. I'm interested in, in in the work itself and thinking about why it means so much to so many people, and 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 why it's called poetry, and why you know what. You know that that's that's something. So I'm trying to write about this. I wrote um, like in I, an essay, or yeah, I mean it's part of this new writing project that I did. Um, um, and uh, yeah, I mean I I I, uh, I actually wrote a poem for her recently because uh, I've just been thinking about her work a lot and about and I I kind of was writing and so some of this daily writing I was doing that I still occasionally do and I was writing about my kid had a fever and so i was up you know that that feeling yeah 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 you're just like like oh god how if this gets to a certain point we go to the hospital you know right and we'd already been in the hospital once because he had the flu and fever was just too high but um anyway and then you're just sitting there kind of freaking out or whatever and and i don't know i was just thinking about how she permits not just permits herself but she goes towards the simple public statement that doesn't present itself as a big poetic thing or whatever. And like how 
how pleasurable that must be to let yourself do that or whatever. So I'd like, I was like, what would it be like to just let myself do that, you know, and write that kind of a poem and write, write a poem for her, um, which I just, I just did recently and I haven't published it yet or anything, but, but, it, but it's also but, like a mixed media project and, you know, she's found a way to meet people. I mean, yeah, she's selling a lot of books, but the origin of her popularity is online and on yeah. Instagram. Yeah. And sure, she's sure. meeting people where they are and she's delivering poems that people can experience in the amount of time that they typically take right. to experience anything online. Right. And that's what you said about technology that you, you, you're absolutely correct about that. She has tapped into a particular way to, to, um, use our, our pervasive technology to make poems available in a way that really makes sense to people in a way that I'm not sure. I mean, it's weird. I mean, you brought up the hologram, which is a funny idea, but I mean, my ideal reading is, would be to be as not there as possible, like in the reading, you know, like, like, like if I could, if I could, I think when I read best, it's when my voice is out ahead of me in a way and it's in the room and people aren't really thinking about me as a person. They're thinking about these poems that are out there. So I, I don't really, you know, for for me, it's about a voice and it's about, it's about language and, and, and experience and our common experience sort of drawing us together, me and the audience together into a space or me and the reader, imagined reader or whatever, together into a space. And so, you know, I don't know what that has to do with technology. I mean, I might be obsolete, you know. Are you going to get an Instagram? Uh, what are you going to do? I got I got Twitter and Facebook. It's like that's already too too many. You know? right. I can't I can't do it. I mean, yeah. my wife's on Instagram and she's like it's much better. It's like less stressful. I, I found Twitter, it more stressful. I just, I, yeah, I, I don't. I just yeah. I'm just like it doesn't matter what it is. I'm just not doing any more social media. Yeah. Let, I mean that's that would be a colossally um, <laughs> counterproductive like, act act on my part to like Classic. sign up for that. I just can't even imagine. Like I I, I literally cannot imagine like being like filling out my name on some new website. I, just, like, I, I think I would be like, it's not, and again, I don't, I want to stress. I mean, I have a, whatever, like MacBook, whatever it is. Like I have a phone, I have an iPhone. You know, I'm not like trying to make it out. Like I'm like, you know, Mr. Like desert Island or something, but like, there's a point where I like, I'm too old, man. I, that's like, I still listen to the replacements. Like I can't, somebody <laughs> cannot go past the same point. And I was pretty proud. I got to, I got to give them a shout out in this, in this new book. So that was good. And, um, you know, um, but I, I, I just like, you know, I'm guess I'm just Gen X on some, some level. Me too. Me too. But I think too, like there's just limits to like, once you get to a certain level of, um, responsibility or I'm a little leery to say busyness. Cause I, I just read like a, I don't know, I've been reading about how people always talk about how they're so busy and mm-hmm. it's kind of like a humble brag and it's bullshit, mm-hmm. but you know, life, you're doing a lot. And I mean, for God's sakes, we're already pulling ourselves in a million directions yeah. attention wise, like to take on an entire new platform just seems, I mean, I totally get how that's just like a non-starter. Yeah. I mean, I just call myself Mark Zuckerberg's unpaid intern. You know, <laughs> right. so it's like, I'm like, you know, I like spending hours, like, like generating content for this guy, you know, so right. buy another Island, yeah. whatever. It's just like, it's just like enough is enough, you know, with the Instagram or whatever. Done. It's like, I mean, but yeah, everybody got to do what they got to do, but I just, I can't. So, um, just to like, I mean, we've kind of like done this in, in shifts, but I want to like, just to make sure I don't miss anything for my own, um, self-interest here in terms of the composition of these poems, particularly mm-hmm. around ones that deal with your father, uh, fatherhood experiences. 
um, you know, you thank in your acknowledgments several people who read and responded, I think, to the poems before you published the mm-hmm. collection. Like, were you looking for particular feedback about that sort of stuff to make sure you didn't have blind spots? How much pairing away did you do around that particular type of content mm. or adding? You know what I'm saying? Can you just talk about like how you got yeah. to finished form and f- f- where you felt like uh, you'd reached a level of comfort with it? Yeah, well, I don't know if I reached a level of comfort. I think I think this book was it was extremely stressful to publish this book, and I felt and I still feel um, painfully exposed, and it's 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 been you know, in some ways, you know, not pleasant. Um, just, just because I'm not, a, I'm, I'm kind of a private person. I'm, I just, I, so I just, I just felt, um, you know, just, just like more of my personal life was available for people to know that I felt comfortable with. Um, my first, the first person who reads, you know, my poems before they become public in this way is my wife, you know, she'll, especially given the content, you know, I showed her. So we, so we had discussions about that and, um, she was very supportive and, but there are a few people actually mentioned Steve Allman. Steve reads a lot of my work. I send him a lot of poems and he's a great reader because he'll respond with great enthusiasm and, and also, you know, will say if something doesn't seem right to him, what I really want those, I want somebody to tell me if they're confused or they don't understand what I'm talking about. I just don't want to be, I don't want to be confusing. I don't want to be elusive or deliberately obscure, which isn't the same thing as saying, I mean, being mysterious or writing into a space that is, you know, complicated or whatever is fine, but just like to be confusing on a basic level, I just can't stand. No. Yeah. No, I, th- I was going to say, like, I felt like your collection, cause I'm as a reader, I always appreciate a certain like clarity. I don't, I don't mind working and I don't mind being challenged, but it's just like, it's, it can get frustrating sometimes when you're like, what the fuck are you saying? Yeah. Mahmoud Darwish says, you know, clarity is the true mystery. Yeah. And it's also, you know, <coughs> uh, it's also hard work, you know, mm-hmm. um, to, to, you know, uh, render things with a measure of depth, but also to be really clear about it. And mm-hmm. the thing I wanted to say is that in your collection and reading it, I felt like there was a great balance between, um, like that kind of lucidity and like they, these poems go down easy, but there are also great moments of mystery and like turns of phrase where you're like, like it, it works on you in that way where like intuitively you, see, you sort of feel like you know what it means, but you have to stop mm-hmm. and think about it. And, um, I don't know. I love that. It was, but it was just in, in the right doses. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. I mean, it has to be authentic, I think to each person's experience, you know, and I, I think, you know, there was when I was writing first time to write poems for a long time, I think I was just excited about language and what it could do. And so I was sort of a lot of my writing and a lot of my poems were about play, you know, playing around and making stuff. And, and, and it, a lot of the time I didn't understand what I was saying. And a lot of the time nobody else could have understood what I was saying. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that as a poet, you know, language is our material. We're allowed to not allowed. I mean, we're, we should play with it. We should experiment with it or whatever. But then there's, a difference between that and work, I think that's gonna like you know, I don't know, move into a different space in terms of readership. And I had this experience. I I published two books of poems, and then I went on this kind of wild excursion, which was um, it, the the publishing house that I worked for, Wave Books. Um, my the the editor there, who's my 
one of my old great friends, Joshua Beckman, um, came up with this idea for a poetry bus. And so we rented this bus and we wrote poetry bus on the side <laughs> and uh, through the publishing house. Work for, and then we drove and we went to 50 cities in 50 days um, and uh, read at you know each spot. And we would pick up poets and drop them off or whatever. And then we would read with the poets in these places. We went all over the United States and Canada. And um, we, uh, d- but during that time, I was also having this experience where there was a filmmaker on the bus and he would sometimes pull us off the bus and he would have found somebody at like a rest stop or, you know, wherever we were and asked them if they want to hear a poem. And often they would say yes. And so he would go get one of us from the bus and then he would film us standing next to this person reading them a poem. And that experience had such a big effect on me because I thought, what would it be like to write a poem that does everything I think poems can do, you know, for me that really matters, but also is totally available to like any person, you know, is there that, does that space exist? And I think that, that focused me in a different sort of way as a poet. Well, and also to get to actually experience that immediate exchange. Yeah. That's rare. And it was, a you know, honestly what it was, it was a response. I felt an immense sense of responsibility. This person, this person said they wanted to hear a poem and I don't know who they are. They're, they're God knows who they are. That could be anybody, you know, and, and, they gave me their attention. It was a gift. It was, it was. I mean, it wasn't like it sounds cheesy to say it or whatever. But like honestly, they could have said "fuck you" to this guy, or they could have walked off, or they could have gone and gotten a burger or whatever. And they said, "No, I'm going to stand here and listen." And I felt this immense weight of responsibility of that attention, and it and I never and that cha- it changed me profoundly. And I never and so that's the that's what I'm thinking about when I make poems. I, I think. Somebody's going to read this, and I, I have a responsibility, I guess. You know, like not, I don't want to make it seem too heavy, but like just it means something to me. Let's just put it that way. You know, I think like, I, I think what you're telling me is I need to rent a bus and create a podcast bus. <laughs> well, in a way, you ha- I mean, I don't want to be <laughs> dorky about it, but in a way, you have done that actually, because I mean, you're not ro- smartly, you're not moving around like you know all over the place, but you are actually doing that. You are in conversation, and I am sure that your next writing project will be intimately related to your work on this podcast. I know it will be. How could it not be? But I think that that's interesting because, because maybe a conversation for you or, you know, is, is somehow that's, that's the mode of, of, of generating that will work, you know, and it makes sense. I, that's, that's worked for me too, you know, in a slightly different way with these, with this daily writing I was doing to a person yeah, distant. That speaks to me. But yeah, and it was, it's really, you know, and that's, that's, we were talking earlier about what you learn as a writer or whatever. I mean, that's one of the things, you know, I think you learn is like, you know, what is it that taps into that creative imagination for you and something, you know, there's some people who want to go out and write in a cafe and there's some people can't stand it. If there's any speech around them, some people listen to music, some people that would die if they did that, you know, whatever. So, but I think like tricking yourself into not taking it too seriously and to getting mm-hmm. yourself into a space mentally and creatively where you are at play, mm-hmm. not easy to do, but like, I think that's a, that's a lot of it. Well, you also asked me earlier about, you know, what, what do I do? Like, you know, in terms of writing about my kid or, um, but we could apply this to lots of other subjects, but and making sure I wasn't like writing the wrong thing or like, you know, 
offending somebody or or, or, or you know, hurting somebody or, or just making mistakes or whatever. I mean, I make all kinds of mistakes and I, I, I write all kinds of stuff that's wrong and I don't believe and all, whatever. But, you know, because I'm writing when I'm writing, well, I'm writing every day and I'm writing a lot. I don't it doesn't matter because I just go back later and look at it. And if I'm ever not sure, I mean, I, there are a few things that I did ask other people about who have some expertise in this area. And then, you know, and I was like, is this, is this, how does this land for you? Does this sound right or whatever? And there were a couple of things that I changed, you know, that was like, someone was like, actually that, you know, I mean, I don't want to go overboard in the sensitivity reader territory, although maybe that's okay. But, but it just was checking in with some people who really knew what was going on. So I, I think it's fine to just let yourself go in the writing and then and then figure it out later and refine it or hone it or whatever. Yeah, I'm trying. That's what I'm kind of trying to you let have myself to, do. You have to. I mean, what else are you going to do? You can't. You know, I I used to box. I used to box, um, and 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 um, I uh, I learned that 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 expression pulling your punches it actually means something because like it it it's you ever heard that expression? You got to take one to give one. Yeah. I mean, what it means is is that if you don't get close enough to getting hit. You're never gonna you're never gonna hit anyone, right? You know, so you when you move in to hit somebody, you you're gonna get hit on the way in. It's it's inevitable. You're gonna get popped in the face, a jab, whatever. And it's not that you know whatever. You got to make sure it isn't a you know huge roundhouse or hook or whatever. But like, but but you know, I think that's true for writing. It's like you gotta you, you're gonna have to take one to give one. You know, you got you 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 are gonna you have to live with that feeling of like. Man, I sound like an idiot here, you know? right? <laughs> like, right. Or, or that was totally wrong, or like, you know. And 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 I've just come to, in a way, enjoy that, you know, because like I just think, I mean, who cares? Nobody's going to see it anyway. So it's like, you know. And I think too, like I'm I'm pretty I'm a pretty forgiving person when it comes to somebody. I talk I've talked on this show a bit about how forgiving I am, in particular, of comedians, mm-hmm. um, like somebody working in that space in good faith, trying to make people laugh. Like questions around sensitivity. I mean, they're still, it's not like they're absolutely without merit, but I tend to be most forgiving in that space. Um, I think that, I guess the same is true for people who are making an honest go of trying to express themselves in a book, whether it's a collection of poems or, um, or a memoir or novel. Like, I, I think the point I'm getting at is that, like, it's sort of funny how I'm pretty permissive and forgiving of others, but like maybe harder on myself than I am with anybody. Probably are. I mean, and I would say in terms of that, I mean, I don't envy comedians right now. I think that's a tough, that's, that's tough because just in the very nature of the act act is transgression. And we're trying to figure out how that fits in with like what we were talking about earlier about the very real harm the language can do. And also the difference between the very real harm language can do and just, a simple like twinge of being offended. Like those aren't the same thing either, you know, but so I don't envy comedians. I think that's a, that's a, that's a, but yeah, I mean, I, I mentioned earlier that I wrote this piece that was in Harper's about this poem that I wrote about Whitman. That's called poem for harm and, um, and about harm in language and about like, you know, understanding that it's not just about being offended, but it's about this kind of pervasive reality that gets created by language that then people have to work against. I mean, if, you know, in terms of whether it's disability or racism or transphobia or whatever, like it, when people talk a certain way a lot, then then that creates the conditions of oppression. So, so you know, I'm like negotiating and trying to work around all that stuff and figure out 
how that all works and also maintain a space of like freedom and in my own work. But the way I solve it, and I talk about this in this essay is that I'm, I wouldn't say solve it, but the way that I begin to deal with it is that Robert Haas has this thing that he says, um, put the problem in the poem. And when I start to feel like a little stuck like that, or like I'm in, a, I talk about being stuck, you know, right. I talk about that problem because it's, it's a human problem. And, 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 I don't try to solve it and then put the solution in. I try to put the grappling in. Yeah, the grappling it, it, is the thing we can all relate to. That's right, right. and it's a, it's also like you're taking yeah. a lot of pressure off yourself. Like yeah. the, your job is is uh, is not to uh, have every solution, but no. it, you state the problem elegantly. I don't think I've ever come up with any good solutions in my writing, right? <laughs> but I, but I might have stated the problems or or, or clarified things or, or have a way of looking at it that maybe is like you know, is, is, is a, like bring some, bring some new perspective to something. I mean, I, you know, I mean, I mean, I kind of say, is, you know, it's again, another thing I say to my students, it's like, I mean, what's the big message of poetry? You know, it's like death is scary, you know, <laughs> love is good. Like, yeah, you know, right. I mean, it's not like the messages are not particularly like, you know, for the most part, are not particularly like, like, like new information, right. but it's just, it's just, you know, oh, I have this different way of like opening up that thing or, 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 or putting myself in, a, in relation to it. That's, that's feels like it gives you a chance to rethink it somehow, you know? Hmm. Well, and before I let you go, you know, um, you know, you talked earlier about being a private person which i relate to um so if i'm getting into territory you don't want to cover you're welcome to wave a hand but you mentioned that um what is it about a year year and a half ago you got sober yeah um and i'm curious um to know how that has impacted your creative life or has it impacted your creative life like do you like how's it i mean it's obviously changed your life in terms of behavior but have you noticed differences in the way you approach poetry or the way that the poems are coming out hmm um, it's funny. I've never, I don't think I've ever talked about this. Um, I don't mind talking about it, but, um, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think that there's, there's a performance aspect to it. I used to drink before I performed and now I don't. And I think that, um, that's changed things a lot for me. Um, it's harder because I'm more nervous, but the performances are way better. And, um, I just think that for me, you know, and it was, it was alcohol, it was drinking really, um, was starting to become untenable in my life personally. I don't have any opinion about what anybody else should do with their lives, but with, for me, it was becoming untenable given the various pressures that I was feeling. And it just became clear to me that, uh, it, it had to stop. And, um, Luckily, you know, I'm not one of those people who, uh, d you know, genetically was predisposed to some kind of brutal physical dependency on it or something. You know, I just think I think that's sort of luck of the draw or bad luck of the draw or whatever. Some people right. shoot for cigarettes, too, or other things. You know, you can just be one of those people that kind of your gear clicks into that substance and it's like real hard to get that gear out no matter how much you want to. But like, luckily, I didn't have that experience. So, so, you know, I just I don't drink anymore. That was it. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I should say I'm not, I haven't been drinking and I hope that that continues and yeah. I intend for it to continue. Yeah. Well, and but, uh, I, what I find I've talked to a lot of people who are sober on this show and there's a part of me, um, and I say this sort of tongue in cheek that envies people who are sober. Um, and I think maybe 
the people I'm thinking of might have like a stronger um, addictive um, gene or impulse than you might. Um, because once you get sober, there seems to be like this great energy displacement, like energy that used to go into using and recovery mm-hmm. from using, you know, like dealing with hangovers and whatever it is that goes along with it can suddenly get channeled into creative work. And the, the work itself becomes a kind of addiction. Um, and so again, tongue in cheek, but there, it's not without merit. Like people can be incredibly generative is what I'm well, talking. I'll tell you what happened. Um, the last drink I had was October 30th of 2018. On November 1st, I began this new writing project that I mentioned with my friend Catherine um, and wrote every single day thousands of words for many months. And so what you're saying is probably true. That's probably what happened. Um, I, re- I redirected. I probably also felt better physically. Uh, mentally, I was more able to focus, and um, uh, yeah. So, so what you're saying is probably exactly what happened, um, and 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 some of that excess energy or anxiety or just like kind of that was getting you know kind of like muted was 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 exploded in a way, and was and luckily I had the channel for it in this daily writing, but it was you know somebody else could have channeled it and it into riding their bike or needlepoint or. Sorry, needlepoint. Yeah, that'd be a lot of needlepoint. <laughs> a lot of scars. Well, I was just going to say, kudos <laughs> to you. I mean, it's one. It's it's hard enough to to you know pull the plug and get sober, but to do it in the middle of the Trump era is, I think, especially. <laughs> yeah, uh, I haven't talked about that at all. Yeah, that's just been. Uh, yeah, that's that. Uh, it's not been relaxing, has it? No. Well, what do you think? Do you have any sense of end game? Oh. Um. I. There's times when I think that this is all eerily resembling just a TV show. And I I did say, I'm not a great prognosticator of political events, but I did say when he was elected, I said, it is inevitable that he will be impeached. Because that is is what happens in the third season of this show. (laughs) There's just no way that's not going to happen. Right. And lo and behold, you know what happened. And so whether what happens as a result of that, I don't know. I think that my instinct is that I have have competing instincts. One is, is that the level of misdeed is so high. And these people are such clowns that, sooner or later something is going to come out that is going to be so egregious that it will be it will create a crisis for even for his most loyal you know supporters in the government <clears throat> that could be totally wrong but i but i'm getting that sense because it just the other thing is, is i was mentioned Lorca earlier i just finished reading this biography of Lorca that's called um um by leslie stainton um and it was terrifying to read the end of that book because you you see how quickly a society goes from liberal democracy to like full on fascist like you know takeover and executions and you know it, it happened and pretty fast and I mean there was back, a lot of back and forth thing but when it actually happened it happened fast and I'm not saying I think we're there or a long way from from Spain in the 30s but it was not great to read that because you started a lot of the same forces 
that were present there are, you know, were, and, and the people like us in then were saying to themselves, I mean, come on, no way everybody, you know, a majority of people can't possibly want fascism or whatever. And lo and behold, that's exactly what they wanted. So I have, as usual, totally competing um, feelings. I am not real happy with the way the Democratic primary is going. I, I'm it has McGovern written all over it. I was I was saying this to a friend of mine who's younger and who's like all in on Bernie and I like what I think where I'm at right now is like I'm like I think I'm just going to like vote strategically. I'm in California. We're on Super Tuesday now. My focus is on getting rid of Trump. Yeah, of course. We need to unify around whoever it is. And we all need to come together and vote. I think his. a lot of people, and I think a lot of people feel that way. I mean, it's it's hard on on Twitter because you know the people who Bernie Bernie people on Twitter, I mean, objectively are incredibly aggravating a lot of the time. But but you know, how many of those people are there really? It doesn't take that many people to make it seem like it's everybody. And there's a lot of people who support Bernie Sanders who are perfectly normal, reasonable people who will also vote for Elizabeth Warren or Biden or whatever. So I'm not. I don't. I don't know, you know, like what's really going on there, but yeah, I mean, listen, come on, we got to get rid of this guy. It's obvious, but, but I don't know. I, from the beginning I said, it's like, it seems, um, unlikely it would be anybody other than Biden, just if you're just doing the math, but who you know, knows? I, know. I mean, I didn't think Trump was going to get elected either. So, right, right. so and I might be perfectly, I'll vote for whoever it is. And I, you know, I, I like Warren a lot and there's things I really like about Bernie and I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not crazy about him, but I, I also, sometimes I want to say to people or like say on Twitter or whatever, you know, that this person who wins the presidency is going to have to get like between, you know, whatever, 60 million votes or something. Right. Yeah. Basically. So there's going to be stuff that the person says you're not going to like. I mean, come on. Right. Like, like let's just get, like, do the math. Right. You know? So we can't be crazy about this. Like, there's whoever it is, there's going to be something pretty disappointing about them because they're running for president. And then, wait, to be your, and then just wait till they win. And yeah. And try to actually so, govern. So, you know, I'm not to say that, I, you know, I mean, I, I admire, like, the hope and, and, and optimism of people who support Bernie and think that that whole thing, the whole thing can change. And I'm not saying that, that they're wrong. I mean, maybe they're right, but I just, I just, yeah, we got to all calm down a little bit and get focused, you know? So right. I'm not the only one to say that, obviously. But. And it's like, you know, if you know your history and I think there were a lot of similar sentiments surrounding McGovern in 72 and hopefully these are different times and it's not like a one for one comparison, but like yeah. what he lost, like what, 49 States or <laughs> he did. I mean, Nixon was reelected, I think with 60% of the vote, um, <sighs> which seems that seems unlikely, but, yeah. but, but I don't know, man. I mean, you know, I listen to you a lot on the show and you, you always ask people and I was like, Oh, he's probably gonna ask me and I won't have anything to say and I'll sound like a total idiot. But, but you know, I, I, there's, there's a, there's a, I just got an email from a friend of mine, um, yesterday asking me to participate in this big, writers resist thing that's going to happen that's going to be about um you know registering people to vote and getting out the vote and raising money for you and i just thought okay i i was filled with this immense sense of relief i was like and i wrote it right back and i said thank you for giving me the opportunity to actually do something right besides worry i mean how effective what i do will be i mean probably negligible you know but 
at least it'll I, I was like just even the idea that I could do something instead of just sitting around worrying about it or like reading the internet or whatever which is pointless and just in fact just contributes to the problem right you know I was like I just was so great I was flooded with gratitude like yeah oh, tell me what to do yeah you know <laughs> yeah tell me what to do where do I go you know yeah yeah my wife's in that world she's a, she's an urban planner and, a, and she went to the Kennedy School and she I joke that she she and her friends are the last of the do-gooders you know but they're, they're in public policy government everything like that and they're these people, you know, they 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 put their what what is it? The money where their mouth is, whatever. Mouth right. where their money is. No, their money where their mouth is, or their mouth where their money <laughs> whatever. is. Whatever. Yeah. So their money and their mouth are in the same place. <laughs> but but, uh, but you know, and so I'm like, oh yeah, there's there's you know, at some point, and the last thing I'll just say about it is is that I think that I think we're gonna have to get ready to get out into the streets because win or lose, this climate stuff is way 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 beyond. Like, and, and, and the, we're going to have to all exert some pressure, you know, we're gonna have to get out of our houses and get on the streets because it can't go on like this. This is, this is a nightmare. You know, yeah, it's, it's like it transcend, it should, it should transcend politics. Yeah. And, and I, you know, and I've seen some articles lately about how the Republicans are now, you know, starting to talk about climate policy and, you know, carbon you know, pricing and market-based solutions. And you know what, whatever we should all be doing, we should be doing everything. But like, I think it, I think there is going to be a tipping point. I just hope it's not too late. You know? Right. Right. So, on that note. All right, man. <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll end there, but uh, it's great to talk to you again. I loved your poetry collection uh, and just the conversation in general. I really yeah. appreciate you making the time. Oh, I love talking to you about writing and everything. So thanks. And talk to you soon. Okay, folks, there you go. That's Matthew Zapruder, and his new poetry collection is called Father's Day. It is available from Copper Canyon Press. Go get your copy. You can find Matthew Zapruder on the internet at matthewzapruder.com. You can follow him on Twitter at Matthew Zapruder. I believe he has a Facebook page. Go track it down. One more time, the collection is called Father's Day. Go get it. If you would like to support this program, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Don't forget, all episodes of this show are available freely. They are offered free of charge. So if you like the program, support the program. If you want to email me, if you have thoughts, if you have feedback, you can write to me at letters at otherppl.com. Thank you to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music there at the top of the interview. Thank you, Tiger in My Tank. I appreciate it. Don't forget about the app. The, the uh, Other People with Brad Listy app is out there. That, too, is available for free. It's available wherever you get your apps. So go get the app if you want the app. The app is free. There will be an episode next week. I'm still deciding on the uh, lineup, so it's going to be a bit of a surprise. But trust that there will be another episode of the program next week. It's all happening. I've got myself back into a rhythm. So... Uh, I think that's it for me today. I thought it might be nice to close it out with another poem from Matthew Zapruder. This one, which feels apropos because it's a little bit political, or maybe it's a lot bit political. It's political. It's called Paul Ryan, for God's sakes. So here is Matthew Zapruder reading a poem called Paul Ryan. Are you ready? Here it is. Paul Ryan Your name so perfectly combines New Testament righteous purity with American white immigrant self-pity. 
It must have been invented in some brushed metallic building, the exact color of despair. You could walk right past and never see. Where sad ghosts think all day about the most efficient way to eat light. They know we need it. It could be used to power every black box, every machine. The ghosts don't want to eat the light, but they must. They work for immense demons. Paul Ryan, you do too. Many years ago, they filled you with the carefully harvested breath of emptied factories, then grew your house, its pretend love and grim commotion, and the slow, imperceptible drip of ideology contaminated your blood until you actually thought your struggles and success were real. So your job was to put on your red hat and go into the world to tell us what is, is by nature just, and only vast forces are real. And even a slight compassion flicker is just a selfish desire to seem unselfish. And maybe you're right. There can be no more pure water. We are defeated and must accept immortal drought. But I don't know. It seems to me the dark triumph that animates your tragic corpse drinks hate. So I will not drink it. Paul Ryan, I love you. I kiss your dry lips to defeat you. <laughs>